Welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hi there. And we're also here with James Chudley, an experienced director at CX Partners. Hello, James. Hey, Guthrie. How are you doing? So, James, where are you? I'm in Bristol, Bristol in the UK. It's down, it's about two hours on the train out of London, kind of southwest UK near Devon and Cornwall. <laughs> Guthrie, you know where that is, right? I, I, I do know where it is. <laughs> you don't. No, no, no. I, I really, <laughs> no, I really do. I really do. Because, well, because you went to, well, well, I was there. Yeah, I'm not, so, so I know that because you were there. But I, yeah. I like uh, I like how um, people can find Bristol by taking by by simply going to London and then taking the train. As yeah, just go to London and left. It's fine. Yeah, just follow, yeah. follow the setting sun. It's easy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, what is it? What is it exactly that uh, that she that you do? What's uh, just so just so people kind of know who you are and who the heck are you, James? Yeah, who the heck are you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I, I spend my time um, running large-scale user-centered design projects here at CX Partners. So uh, all of our work involves um, users and user research. So we, we typically spend lots of our time um, finding out how people go about doing things in their everyday lives and trying to make their lives easier by redesigning things to make them easier to use in a nutshell. Um, and we work with websites and apps. And then uh, typically more and more we're working with things that aren't digital uh, like services and products and uh, and companies trying to make companies work better and encourage companies to adopt user-centered design themselves and helping them to grow their own teams and changing the way that companies work um, so it's re yeah really interesting how how the nature of work has changed over the years and is uh, continually changing as well so um james do you remember at all how we first met because i don't <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, I remember, like, I remember being at your offices, which I guess is your old offices, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And I remember us talking at a uh, UXPA event somewhere. No, that's right. Yeah, in uh, in Vegas. That was exciting. In Las so, Vegas? Is that when yeah. we were in Las Vegas? Um, is that where, did I meet you there or had we already known each other there? See, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, I think I think you came to Bristol first because we. Um, yeah. Would make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you you kindly came along and gave a talk to our uh, a, a group that I help organise in Bristol. So we we set up a group uh, years ago called the Bristol Usability Group. Yeah. Um, which is a is a group of like-minded people who are working in what was I suppose then the usability field, which is which has broadened quite significantly, um, of course to. to follow trends in the industry and things but um yeah so i think that was the first time we met when you, when you oh came when up. i came to do the talk which we yeah. did like in a in a bar that's right that's right <laughs> it's a, it's a so bar. i really remembered that <laughs> yeah there's a great little bar called the the watershed and those and that group's kind of continued and grown it, it's amazing how how big the ux community is here in bristol it's just one of these hubs in the uk that seems to have um, evolved over time and attracted lots of people uh, for some reason, I guess I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, within the kind of uh, the UX field, um, well, the whole and, uh, we've the got an amazing community here. Field of um, you know user experience and and designing so that things uh, are fit people is huge in the UK. I 
you, you, I don't know if you know that over here in the United States, we often have conversations about why why are things why are there so many UX people over in the UK? <laughs> hey, I mean, really? Yeah. So, so James, um, which so out of all the all all, all the countries. In your opinion, what what country do you think has the best uh, like UX usability experience culture? Oh, that's a really interesting question because, funnily enough, I was reflecting on this the other day when I was thinking about the people who've kind of influenced me um, through my career. And when when I first started working in this industry, I, I guess I didn't really realise I was I was working in the field of user experience at all. Um, but I did find myself following lots of um, I used to have these kind of RSS feed things set up. So quite often in the morning at work, I'd, I'd read all these these articles written by people, and the majority of those those articles were were written by people in the in the states. So I guess, funnily enough, you know, I, I've I've often thought the same thing that you were saying there, Susan, about well, where where are the thought leaders and where's that coming from? Uh, and it certainly felt like those those earlier influences were were certainly in the states, but. I guess it's interesting how the industry's grown and where where those hubs are now located. Well, and, and we're, the, we're lucky in the UK. I mean, the thing with the United States is we're very large and spread out. So if and you're going, loud. <laughs> so, if, so if you're going for quantity of thought leaders, I, I feel we might lead, but for quality of, of culture uh, when it comes to UX. Oh, oh really, Guthrie? Well, because like you said, there are a lot of places, even, I mean, even now, and it's less and less all the time, and I'm sure it's, you know, I, five years ago when was it four or five years ago when when we started out um we would you know i you know and it's still true today we'd find companies who did not have anyone i mean this and this wasn't a mom and pop this would be like you know a company with hundreds or thousands of employees and they would not yeah. have a ux person or much less a team yeah it's it's i mean and you know i've James, you probably know this because I've been in I, the field, whatever the heck that means, because it's changed <laughs> so much and the name has changed. But I've been in the in this field of the intersection of um, people and technology for a very long time, and it it's it, you know Guthrie's right. We recently went and uh, gave a speech at for an internal conference at a really large healthcare company uh-huh. in the US. And, um, you know, typically, large companies in healthcare in the US are, you know, they're fairly savvy about user experience stuff. And, and this company is definitely savvy about tech stuff. And yeah, this is they, definitely, this is definitely like, many, many billions of dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a huge company. And, um, they five years ago they hired their first UX person, right? Uh, and now now they have you know, um, over two hundred. So they, I mean, they they grabbed it and went fast. But to you know to to me, for a company that large in that um, you know uh, modern uh, an industry to have just started on UX five years ago, I guess, I mean, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but it surprised me. Yeah, I, I think um, 
certainly a, a thing I've noticed in over the years is the both the nature of who our clients are in terms of their job their job title, uh, how that's changed massively from being maybe marketeers years ago to now becoming product managers, but also how how teams of UX have have grown within our within our client organisations. So it always used to be the case it was kind of a client supplier relationship, and then it shifted fairly fairly recently i'd say to working peer-to-peer i can remember a project working with hotels.com about oh blimey maybe six years ago where we were we were just working in parallel with their ux team and it wasn't like we were the experts telling them what they should be doing they were just really we were just an extension of, of their team of experts and and we were just sharing the work between ourselves and so you know we were being kind of told what to do and almost being treated like a an additional source of resource if you like um, and that that shift has, has continued. You know, we see huge amounts of, uh, um, I guess, you know, companies creating their own teams in house, creating innovation um, departments. Um, and so I think a lot of agencies or consultancies now have their, their competitors are these in house teams. Um, so you know, I have a whole rant on that. Okay. <laughs> From, um, what's, and I and I'd like to get your opinion on whether you think this is true or not because. Go on. One of the things that that um, I often talk about if I'm talking to UX people, yeah. uh, especially consultants outside the company, is um, that one of the reasons your projects uh, get into trouble and become uh, very messy and kind of blow up on you, if they do, is that there's a difference in expectation about whether you as the outside person are acting as what I call a consultant or acting as um, a contractor. And if you don't, if you don't know, and it hasn't been discussed, this will, this will uh, rear its head. So what happens typically um, is all, all unconsciously, uh, you come in as the consultant and you think of yourself as the consultant, which means you think of yourself as the expert with mm-hmm. the knowledge who's going to guide and advise. And that's your role. And again, as I said, this is not even discussed. It's, you may not even realize you're doing this. And that works really well if that's the expectation that the client has. But sometimes what happens is they don't they don't think that they think they're the expert they're in charge and you are an extra pair of hands which is not mm-hmm. a bad thing but it's just a very different role and so um as the project moves along uh and it, you both start getting really annoyed because you know you say to them I, I really think it would be best if we did blah 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 and they say we're not going to do that why won't you just do it do what i told you to do and then, and and the, you know, when when I play, um, sometimes my role is therapist to consultants. Yep. You know, they'll come to me and they'll say, I, you know, I don't like. She seems really annoyed, and um, you know, she keeps asking me why do I keep saying that, and I don't understand what's going on. And then that'll, you know, usually that that's the red light, and uh, and I say, well. Who who's the expert? And the consultant says, "Well, I am. I'm the consultant." Right? Yeah, right. And the client says, "Well, no, I am. I know my project. You know, you're supposed to be helping out." Um, so this is something that I think is really important to, um, you know, establish and work through if it 
if it starts to go awry. And I'm wondering how, you know, have you had that experience and how have you, because you said you, you think it's starting to shift more and more where the, the client is the one that's, you know, really running the show and you're, you're assisting. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's often quite clear from the early stages of a project as to what that dynamic's going to be um, from, I guess, the perspective of the experience of the people you're working with and also the, the terms upon which the engagement's been uh, established. Because you may be in a situation where someone's saying, look, we, we don't know how to do what you guys do and we want you to do it for us, but we want to then take on that work moving forward. So we don't want to work with you for a long period of time. And then it's quite clear what the dynamic is. But I think it's the kind of thing that you'd have to, I'm just trying to think whether I've got some experience of, of where that's been a dynamic that we've had to actually broach with with someone we've been working with and say, look, what's what's going on here? But um, it, it seems to me that it becomes very apparent quite early on and that if someone is playing if someone is being that overly, I'm the consultant, I know the answers, then uh, then often that goes really horrifically wrong because, you know, often the people that we're working with are are as experienced as we are, you know. And so guess, you're just saying that it's the Americans that, that have this problem. No, not at all. The UK are too, you guys are too, too uh, uh, prepared and nice and you work it all out ahead of time. I would believe no, that. No, I, I don't think <laughs> No, not at all. Because interestingly, uh, I think you get the same dynamics sometimes within, uh, I don't know, sort of speaking from the environments I've worked in within, say, working within an agency environment. And then maybe you bring a contractor in to work on a project uh, who are like a freelancer. And sometimes they take the view that because they are a freelancer, they may they may, you know, be in a slightly different position of knowledge, maybe. And maybe what they say they say goes and, and or people who are being brought into project teams as specialists um which is a really interesting dynamic and i think it's it's there are all these things that kind of contribute to the end result don't they i mean i was talking to a a, a friend today at work talking about you know all of these things that impact on the quality of design and there are all these other forces at play you know these these politics and these dynamics within project teams that Definitely. will have an impact on the end result um, and those are the things that make work hard, I think. You know, how do you how do you get through these things? They've got nothing to do with the thing you're making, but um, you have to resolve them in order to make the thing good. There's this guy um, uh, years ago, his name is Weinberg, I believe, and he wrote a book called oh, yeah. The Secrets of Consulting. Do you know his book? Um, and he's, I mean, this is from decades ago. He yeah. was a software uh, developer and you know he wrote like software methodologies in the 90s 1990s and he has that phrase um all problems are really people problems yeah um, absolutely. yeah so all right i have another a totally different question okay Go. when when i was in bristol with you many years ago yeah. uh, we had you actually recorded a podcast with me and That's we right. were talking about um, photographs and photography yeah. um, because that is, that was then at least something that you were very involved in. You were an avid photographer. Are you still? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's one of those it's one of those joyful hobbies that can kind of come and go and fit around your life. So um, I've I've got a couple of young children now. So it's it's uh, that's how had... many is a couple? Well, two, two. How uh, old are they? Uh, seven and five seven and five so so the kind of landscape photography that i used to do lots of that i don't do so much of that at the moment <laughs> there's it's a more... little bit of a landscape in the background but... <laughs> yeah 
or, or maybe in the back garden you know maybe that's just, so there's a yeah. bit of that going on but no I, I, I do still manage to uh, to take lots of pictures and I still love it so yeah and no, I, I I love it and that that was really um, a, a bit of an experiment to see whether there was a, a way that I could weave my hobby into my job <laughs> which is always always a good thing to try and do I think um, has it worked I think well I think what was interesting about it was that there was there was a thing that I thought was important and it, and it came from watching things happening within user research and the the whole premise behind it was that we were conducting some research with a a company that sold um frozen food actually uh, frozen ready meals and it was really interesting seeing the way that people reacted to the photography that was used on a website and the conclusions they drew from that photography that some of which weren't necessarily true but were massively advantageous to our clients so so for example there was a there was a photo of a delivery van driving through the snow and the people who we were doing the research with were saying things like this company's amazing they'll deliver the food whatever the weather and um, <laughs> the was loving it you know they were watching they were kind of doing cartwheels in the observation room thinking this is amazing and it just made me think that you know photography is such a powerful thing a way of communicating things but it may be communicating things that you have no idea of or that you really don't want to be communicated so from a design perspective shouldn't we be thinking more about the photography we're choosing um within the products we design and and the the other the, the kind of the catalyst to that was that i'd observed over many years of of the photography being the kind of poor relation within the design process that it would then would never be budget for it or that we'd have to use really dodgy stock photos or you know what I mean so you know it was it was yeah. being it was the poor relation but it was having a huge impact on on the user experience and the way that things were being used and perceived and I thought oh this is this is amazing this is there's something in this because when I take pictures I design the photo you know I go out at a certain time of the morning I deliberately uh, shoot the pictures in a certain way because I want to elicit a certain response from the people who are viewing them um and so I was designing the photo. So shouldn't we be thinking more about the, f the photography we're using? So that's where it all came from. And it just kind of, it became a thing, which was, that was, that was cool. You know, it was, it was really exciting. It felt like, you know, we were breaking new ground or identifying a new thing. And it seemed so to resonate how, as well. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking about that when I visited you, which was, was that like, I think it was 2013. That sounds yeah, right that sounds about right. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. So. And, it, and I remember talking about that, and it seemed uh, like an obvious but fairly new thing to think about as, a, as for me, and I think I probably mentioned this to you, you know, as a, as a UX person, a psychologist, and a yeah, behavioral scientist, absolutely. but not being, you know, I'm not a photographer. So it, it, it was obvious that that would be true, but it, it, I hadn't thought about it. Do you think that that's, um, has that changed in the last four years are we are people now you know much more cognizant of do you think in the design field of the power of the photograph i don't know i'd i'd, I'd love to imagine that the, the fact that i wrote a very short book on it has changed the world but in reality <laughs> <laughs> let's let's be realistic it's a good it's not. a good book too you should <laughs> what is the name of that book you should say uh, it's called the usability of web photos, and it's uh, it's up on Amazon, and it's about I think it's about one pound fifty or two pounds, so uh, yeah, super super cheap. It's a, a, a nice quick read. But um, um, really for, for for those not in in the UK, um, that's a he's unit not, of currency, not, not, not the, the weight. weight. Yeah. 
Yes. Oh yes, yeah. God, no, the, no. Because <laughs> one, one pound like would be the appropriate weight of a book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's it's an ebook, so it's literally it's weightless. It's weightless. Um, but I, Although I think, it has uh, great weight in in other ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without without doubt. Um, I think what was what was interesting about that was that the more I talked about it, the more it seemed to resonate with people. But I think the problems that were getting in the way of people doing something about it were still there, are still there in terms of um, budgets not being maybe dedicated to photography in the right way, or 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 actually maybe. Um, Maybe typically in the design process, the, the the job of choosing photography doesn't, I don't think, ever really fall with someone who would describe themselves as a usability person or a UX person. Often that's um, that's within the, the reign of someone else, maybe an art director, who will be thinking about maybe photography, possibly just from a from a brand point of view and not from a how is this going to be perceived and what job, what's the job of this photo? You know, is it yeah. just illustrative or does it have a purpose? And if it I, has a purpose. I, I know. I remember talking about that and I still feel like it's not, I still feel like you're right. You're right. I think it's, I think it's probably a combination of, um, I mean, people just not used to thinking about it enough, but, but about this intersection of that and the roles, right? Because as a UX person, I may know it's important, but it's not my job to pick or take the photos. And so, I, you know, it falls off my radar because I I can't control it. And then... And there's never know, enough it, budget for anything, ever. Well, but isn't that... But what comes first, right? Is the budget not there because people don't realize how critical it is? Or, you know, I... And it's so important. You know, I, I talk about... Um, and, and I've been checking out all the really fascinating work on peripheral vision, for instance. And, oh, yeah. you know, we know that um, photos are so critical in peripheral vision in, in conveying uh, information and, on, you know, per, your peripheral vision controls where you look next. And images of uh, with emotional content get processed faster in peripheral vision than central vision. And so, um, I, you know, the whole photographic element uh, is so important, and and um, I'm I'm working right now with a client, and uh, we're kind of studying the whole phenomenon of fake news, and oh, yeah. um, so I got I had the chance to talk to um, a uh, a person uh, in California. His name is Stephen Frenda, F R E N D A, and he's a he's a behavioral scientist. I'm actually not sure exactly what his field is, um, but he did some research on the um, impact of photographs in, in their role in fake news. And he just did this great series of studies in which included, uh, you know, showing people uh, photographs um, uh, about news events and how much the photograph, uh, whether there was a photo and what the photo was about, had influenced their uh, memory yeah, right. of the event, you know, of whether it had even occurred or what had happened. Um, and so I'm always, you know, having working with that recently, I've been reminded again how very critical the the photos are. I remember not too long ago, or it's shortly after I think you and I met and we were talking about photographs, um, I was working with a, a client, uh, Automobile, 
mm-hmm. client, and they had this whole series of photos for their website redesign and um, of cars, right? And mm-hmm. they had several photos where it they were from a very weird angle, and so the car looked, it was like the front of the car, but you were kind yeah. of below it, and the car okay. looked very aggressive. I mean, like yeah. it was coming at you really Which fast. Which was deliberately, presumably. But there was always like a a vulnerable person standing in front, you know, like it looked like the car was about to mow down the woman or the family. And I was like asking them, you know, did they do that on purpose? Did they know that, you know, they had an aggressive car about to mow down a family? And (laughs) they kind of, they looked at me like I was crazy. They really did. You know, like what the heck are you talking about? So I don't know whether, you know, they, just didn't care or whether they didn't realize or maybe they wanted that effect i think um it reminds me actually of a photo shoot that i was involved with years ago for a um a website for a, a car manufacturer that we we're working on and um the photographer was talking about how there are classic angles that you shoot a car from that makes the car yeah. look great and they were trying to um they were trying to make this car look really high-end and really it had some certain design features that were kind of reminiscent of a uh, Possibly Ferrari, but it was it was a family car. So it was a bit like, just acknowledge the fact you've got kids, you need to carry a load of stuff around, you're never going to own a Ferrari, but, you know, this is just, you know, this will just keep the dream alive. <laughs> uh, so there was some deliberate design styling on this car. Maybe it was the same company. Maybe, yeah, maybe. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, there are some, I think with certain products, I think with anything, there will be ways that you shoot it. So, you know, people who are going to take pictures of the inside of, of houses if they're trying to sell houses or hotel rooms, they'll do it in a certain way and there'll be like a signature style. So, and there'll be, there'll be rules probably around the ways in which you should never shoot a certain object like a car because it will just look boring or mundane. Um, and so I think that's that's fairly that's fairly typical but what's interesting is that it, it might not be a view that you'd ever see as an owner of that car and actually something that might be more yeah, you're usually not like... kneeling in front of the car <laughs> have you ever have you ever looked at some of the um some of the car ads from like i don't know maybe like 19 like 86 like know, like they're good. modern enough to not be cool yeah but they're definitely old enough to like to, to be to look really old and drab uh, yeah so if you go and you find a uh, I, I encourage you to do this go find like the uh, like the ads for like you know like an 86 Honda Accord or something you know like yeah. or uh, or anything and it'll, and it'll have you know just this amazing photo shoot with you know the sports person and you know and and of course they're standing in front of what we would consider just this junky ugly boxy <laughs> heap of like driving trash um but but yeah. like the photo shoot is this glamorous photo shoot and they're at like some sort of like fancy rich estate dinner uh, yeah. it's very yeah. entertaining well i suppose that i guess <laughs> what this is what this is illustrating is there's a there's a complete difference between the motivations of a photographer and maybe maybe the the, the business or the client who are, who are commissioning the photographer because they're trying to sell a product and they're trying to make it look like maybe something that it isn't and then the motivations of the person who might want to buy that car and and i kind of we were aware of this with a recent client project where we said well actually could we make the photographer think like a ux person so we tried to brief the photographer to t- we tried to kind of explain what what ux and usability was 
which was which was really interesting experience because of course the photographer was like well I don't know what you're talking about and um, got them to shoot specifically for the web and specifically for a responsive design project as well again photographer was like I don't know what you mean I don't know what you're talking about but it seemed crazy to us that well they're creating assets for this thing we're making they have to understand the thing we're making in order to shoot photography in the ro- in the most appropriate way um, so we then tried to feed in user needs and requirements into the commissioning of the photo shoot uh, so they knew what the user was thinking when they were going to be viewing their photos and it was a really interesting experiment to completely rework the way that photography was commissioned well did it think, work they're artists well yeah but this is the thing because you think normally the the way that the dilemma of you always think like what makes a great ux person well it's someone who understands the business context let's assume you're working for a commercial organization they understand the business and they understand the user and they can design things and make things that balance the requirements from both of those potentially competing viewpoints but then if you throw a photographer in the mix the photographer wants to create beautiful images that are probably going to be great for their portfolio the business wants great photographs as well but they have certain needs they want to or messages they want the photography to communicate from a user point of view they've got again certain questions they'd want the photography to answer so how do you i mean with this this was case in point actually when we were trying to we were discussing individual images for individual pages and i was saying well, right the user needs for the these are the questions the users are going to come to this page with in their mind. And then the business were putting forward, well, we want the photography to do these things. And the photographer was like, oh, I want to commission a helicopter. <laughs> because it would be cool. And you're like, well, how on earth are we going to come to an agreement? How can we, and the photographer is also, like you were saying, is an artist. And they were like, I want to, I want to own this bit of the process. You know, this is down to me. I want to come up with the ideas and really push the boundaries of the locations and the subject matter because I want to shoot something that's cool and is going to be exciting and allow me to use different tools and techniques. So you've got this amazing, again, the thing that seemed quite simple was massively complicated in terms of these potentially conflicting requirements and objectives. So do you think we, we, should, we should go with trying to you know, create a, a subset of... Um, of uh, people who are photographers but now understand you know they're kind of ux photographers they're specialists or should we take ux people and try to make them photographers if we want to fill this hole yeah and no, i think i think photographers are photographers but they just it's just um feeding it's just briefing them in a certain way so it was interesting the conversation i had with this guy who who took the photos for the project i worked on um and said look we're going to I don't know how the commissioning process normally works, but I'm going to write you a brief in the same way that I would write a brief for, a, say, a web design project or whatever it might be. And it was interesting to talk with him about the sorts of briefings he normally had or the lack of briefings he had in terms of direction um, and just feed feed him with, with the information that I thought he needed to try and guide the process to, to make sure we got the output we needed to get to. Um, and also remind him of, of where his work was going to go. So showing him some of the page designs for with a placeholder for where his images were going to sit mm. and explaining to him how those pages um, reflowed on a mobile device compared to a desktop or a laptop or whatever it might be and said, actually, this is going to change the way you compose the image because when someone views this on a desktop, you've got 
the, the image was like a long kind of letterbox style rectangle. So when he composed the image, he had to put his the subject of the image in a certain part of the frame because of the way the the typography was showing on the left hand side of the picture. So he had to he had to kind of compose things to suit. But then when that image was shown on a mobile device, the image was cropped in a different way and it had to then contain information within a different part of the image. So it was really fascinating to give him these requirements to see how he responded to it. So I think if you said, actually, you know, let's get rid of all the photographers and let's let's just the UXs can take the photos, then it, you know, it's not it's not going to work. But it's just it's giving them the information they need uh, to understand the context within which their images are going to be viewed. So is uh, this your next um, is this your next ebook you're going to write for us? Well, I, I was, is I was how to do a how to create a brief for a photographer. Well, interesting. I, I wrote this up actually. It's on Medium. It's an article called "How to Run a User-Centered Photo Shoot." And, uh, oh, and that's, wonderful! That's as far as I've got with it, I can share the links with you. And uh, you know, if everyone just just Google's that, they should find it. Um, and it's really, a, I just wrote up the story because it was an amazing opportunity to be given. We'd we'd run, or we we were in charge or responsible for redesigning um, a client's website it was for the Institute of Mechanical Engineers, um, based in in London here in the UK. And uh, and then we were subsequently given a brief to commission some photography for some of those pages. Uh, at which point I got really excited. I thought, wow, you know, we can we can try this and let's let's try and make this photo shoot a bit more user-centered. Um, and I don't know if we were successful or not, but it was an amazing opportunity and a really interesting to try a different way of, of working with quite an established process. So the yeah. whole story is there within that, within that article. Um, I can share those links with you. Uh, and it just kind of tells the whole story of how we briefed the photographer, what happened during the photo shoots, the problems we had, the things we learned, the stuff that happened that I would have never anticipated uh, the kind of disasters we had. But it's all, it's all there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, send us those links and I will put them in the blog post when I talk about this podcast because that sounds, really, that sounds okay. really interesting. So what – so – uh, I so photography. You were you were into this whole idea of photography and design um, when we talked several years ago, and and you're still into it. But tell me what else you're working on, or what's new, or what you'd like to be working on. Yeah, I think I've I've been thinking a lot about. Um, I've just reflecting on the sorts of things I've been talking about at conferences and things over the last couple of years, um, and I did a lot on a lot of photography and then that's kind of moved into just thinking more about um as i myself was moving into more kind of leadership roles from practitioner skills or practitioner roles thinking about what were the what were the things that make people good at being leaders and managers and then more recently also thinking about what are the things that make um good ux as good you know because lots of people perhaps because the industry still seems to be booming and growing and lots of people want to move in the industry. I quite often get asked, you know, what, what skills do I need to have? How can I get a job? How's that going to work? So I've been reflecting a lot on that actually and thinking about, you know, why, why are some projects more successful than others and what are those dynamics that are going on and what can we learn from projects and try and make more and more projects more successful and, and, uh, and, and people work, uh, in a way that, that works better for them really. So I suppose, yeah, my, my, my focus has shifted a little bit because, um, because of the types of, not so much the types of projects I've been working on, but I, I am continually working on, on, on projects and continually trying to think, well, how can we make this better? You know, how can so, this work? So what, so can you share with us one of your ideas that maybe is like uh, counterintuitive or surprising or, 
What do you mean in terms of uh, what specific? In terms of what what makes a UX project work or what makes leadership in a project? I mean, all the things you were just talking about that that you've been that you've been talking about when when you're giving keynotes and so on. What, share one of those with us that you think maybe maybe isn't as obvious. Yeah, I think um, I think from the, the the from the UX practitioner side, I was really focusing on on what I was seeing as being the soft skills that make a real difference to to the project, the success of a project. You know, what what is it that good UXs bring to a project? Because I think people people always focus on on what I describe as the hard skills. You know, can you are you good at conducting interviews or are you good at creating these kind of design artifacts or um, can you you know can you do can you use a certain software program? But actually the things that which are all things that I think you can learn, but actually, if you have these uh, these soft skills such as, you know, being pragmatic, uh, being a great communicator, um, being positive, you know, and, and being resilient to the the inevitable kind of highs and lows of a design project, those are the sorts of things that will make a massive difference to the the, the quality, of the output, you know, the things you're working on, but also the experience that other people will have when working with you. Um, you know your ability to solve problems. You're just like having just being curious about how the world works uh, and being a good listener. And all of these things, the more it's funny, you know, you sort of think, I think there's something in this, and there must be a pattern because I think as a UX person, I find myself continually looking for patterns and trying to work out why things work. You know, what is it about that thing that that is good, and what can I extract from that and reuse it for for a different purpose? And so, I guess it's quite a natural thought process for me to have. And then, you know, you naturally start thinking about the projects you've worked on, the people you've worked with, and think, well, well, yeah, everyone can do the hard skills because it's commoditized, and you have to be able to do it. But why was working with that person so much better, or so felt so easy? And uh, and those seem to be really interesting things to identify. Um, yeah, I remember. Um, I remember years ago. I had a client who wanted to grow their their user experience group yeah. in house, and I think this was before it was called user experience. It was probably called a usability group at that point. Cool. And um, I I was talking to so they they had asked me. It was actually a really weird request they had because I I was teaching a number of courses, you know. Uh, it in their a number of workshops in their company on user experience, and this was because this was long enough ago that uh, a lot of the people coming to the classes were not usability or UX people. They were, yeah. you know, from uh, they were developers, they were yeah. project managers, they were business analysts, right? All these different people they had inside the organization, and they had asked me, um, as you are teaching the workshops we want you to identify the people that would be good at oh, really yeah <laughs> and, and i'm like wait a minute you want me to teach or you want me to how am i gonna like well, how am yeah. i gonna do that well just keep your eye out and i was like okay guys this is not you know i don't know if this is a good idea um so i was not in, a fan of the idea but it definitely got me thinking about uh you know the kinds of things you're talking about right what what does make for a good person and and essentially what we end, what I suggested they do uh, instead of me trying to do hidden evaluations yeah. of possible potential while I'm teaching a workshop um, I what we did was we did the workshop 
and then we we did an like an introductory workshop and then we would let people know at the end of it that we were going to be doing this more in-depth training and we let them self-select right? right so the people who said oh i really want to learn more about this were the people okay. then that that became the candidates but what was one of the things that um came out of that was um I decided that one of the most important qualities was a real excitement and passion for the work. Yeah. Um, and, that, and that sounds like, oh, you know, well, that's mundane. But, you know, it's not mundane because whenever I, I've mentored a lot of people and the ones that um, the ones that stick with it and are still doing it, you know, five, ten years later are the ones who just really – and, you know, they find the work interesting and challenging and, you know, they, they find the projects, right. And the whole, you know, problem solving that you're talking about and, uh, the listening and the curiosity, you know, that's the part of the work they really love. And so they're also then good at it. And I've seen a, the people who are just kind of doing it because, well, you know, it's a good job and it pays fairly well. And, uh, you know, I can get, I can get a job doing it. Um, but, they're not particularly excited about what it means to design in context. Um, they, you know, they don't last very long and they, they get frustrated at the, you know, places where the project team isn't working together very well, or they get frustrated when people don't listen to them and just implement their design, you know, and they just, at, they leave, they end up going yeah. to, and doing something else or not always, but, but often, so I've always put that, you know, a passion for the work that you just, you're incredibly curious about people and about people, um, you know, using stuff and you want, you know, you're really passionate about wanting to not just design, but design something that uh, works for the users and works for the business, you know, that this is a, you know, a, Every time you, you're working on one of these projects, it's like a, a, an interesting puzzle to solve, and you like that. Those are the people that are, I think, really do well in it and are pretty good designers. But yeah, that was just always one of my criteria. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I, I think um, I think fundamentally, of course, you think well, you you have to be interested in people and and the way they go about living their lives and the things they do and the problems they face and and wanting to make things better. I think you know if you're not if you're not particularly interested in in improving things, then you're going to struggle. Um, but I think that that curiosity is is massively important. From the I just think of the amount of times that I've I've been faced with a new brief from a client and I, I I may have never heard of their company before I might know not know anything about their sector and so all of a sudden you're kind of exposed to this new world that you didn't know existed yeah and then you get the privilege I feel of 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 what of learning more about this new area and then understanding the problems that people are facing and then I, I think that's the bit that really has always excited me is like you feel I know I know what the problems are and I know now how we can solve these problems and, and make stuff better. And that's that's fantastic. You know, that's always been, I feel, really privileged to be able to do that type of work. That's that's amazing. Um, and I think it's the, it's those sorts of things that, you know, fundamentally, if, if that doesn't interest you or excite you, then you're going you're gonna to struggle because why would you care? Like, why would you bother to fight the fights to make the thing better? Because it never, you know, not that all projects involve fighting, but, um, you know, it's important to get your voice. I think they, I think they do. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, there, there is a bit of that. Maybe they're all fighting against it. something, <laughs> right? I mean, it might be fighting against the the constraints or fighting it. I mean, I, I don't mean fighting it. It doesn't have to be a negative thing. It's just kind of this interesting... Um, you know, it's like it's like fighting against entropy. You know, I mean, there's always yeah, these interesting yeah. things that, yeah, that just occur, right? And and that's part of what you have to overcome. But I agree with you, and I don't think there's anything wrong with with not being interested in that. I mean, not everybody in the world needs to be fascinated by, you know, people and people doing things, right? I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. Not, to some people, that would be like, what? It's boring. And, and or that's, you know, that's not how I want to spend my time. So I think, um, but I think you're right. I think you have to be uh, really interested in in people. And, and you have to be, you know, interested in people. So, I, I mean, I, I just know I've seen some people who are like, oh, well, why are they doing that? They shouldn't do it that way. Yeah, they're wrong. Right? Yeah. yeah. Why? Well, they, 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 if they just change the way they're doing it, it'll be fine. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that's that. But, but the interesting thing is, why are they doing it that way? Right. Yeah, and, absolutely. and I think too, just, you know, like if you think about a, a really simple thing, like observing, um, uh, a user test, you know, observing a person using a product or service and, just watching them do it and then they do something and and they do something that you know is some people would consider quote wrong right mm -hmm. they press the wrong button or whatever and is your reaction you know why the heck did they do that or why are they so stupid that they do that or what's wrong with them or or is your reaction wow look at that yeah I absolutely wonder, i wonder what they're thinking right now or I wonder why they would have I wonder why they chose that you know so it's that kind of um, you know basically wanting to run experiments you know yeah I think that's interesting isn't it because I, I I don't feel qualified at all to do my job I, I studied environmental science so you know I'm a I'm a scientist <laughs> but I think you know it's kind of I say it flippantly but actually I think lots of people within the industry and have come from hugely different backgrounds. You know, I, I was joking with a colleague the other day who actually had a degree in the job that he was doing was just saying, well, you're cheating. You know, none of, none, none of us have got degrees in what we're doing. <laughs> we, I've come from a hugely different background. But the fact that I, I was a, you know, I worked, I came from a science background, I suppose. That's, I found that really helpful through this whole idea of, of running experiments within design and taking this idea that yeah. design is never finished. And that's been really liberating for me, um, having read books like Lean Startup and thought, well, hey, I understand experiments and everyone has a hypothesis. Oh, that's cool. You know, I understand what that means. And um, we can all just run this thing as a, as a, as a, bit, of a, as a bit of an experiment. And let's just see and, and find out where we go and what works and what doesn't work. Um, and I guess where I was coming from with uh, the talks I was doing is I was trying to make people realize that they probably already had the skills that they would need to be good at being a UXer, whatever that means. Um, and it was just, it was a kind of a bit of a, a, a rallying cry to say, well, come, come along. You know, you can, you can learn the, the kind of hard skills, not the difficult skills, but you know, you can learn how to use the, it might be some wireframing software or it might be, you know, whatever it might be, you can learn that, it's fine. But fundamentally, if you don't have those, you know, personality traits or those interests, then, you you know, you're, go you're going to struggle. So, um, 
that was the thing that I, I felt was important and and um, and it really important for people to understand that they if they had those things that they, they could be nurtured and they could grow the other things but the the soft skills were the things that would make them would, would make them stand out that's true in a lot of industries though like um, a lot of the yeah. things you so, described uh, like so I went to law school and uh, oh, okay. yeah and I'm thinking about uh, you know my uh, my law classes and and the people who you know at the end of the day it's like do you have soft skills? Do you have a, a do, you, do you have an interest in actually figuring out what's going on? I mean, you know, it's the, these are things that translate well into success. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I, I suppose there's there's lots of people moving between sectors all the time, aren't they? And and you know, you will have had you will have had formal training to to do a thing, but there are there are these hugely transferable skills um, that it's important for Especially people to Especially when recommend. it comes to people, because really, because between the law and, uh, and use, I mean, it's really, because you just, you're, you're, you're working with people and trying to understand why people have done a certain thing. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that you could, there's lots of transferable skills, so, you know, from a, you know, let's look at the kind of the research part of, of doing UX work, then, then you can imagine lots of lots of other professions that involve spending time with people, nursing, counselling, all of these sorts of things. We think actually they probably make quite good researchers because they're interested in people. They know how to talk to people. They're good at building rapport with people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of that. Well, we, that's great, yeah, we we have a we have a uh, a friend and and colleague who's a UX person now and has been for many years. And when yeah. I met him, he had been a family counsellor. Oh really? <laughs> a therapist. Was... Yeah, he. I mean, yeah, that right. was his. He was trained yeah. as a therapist, and he wanted to do. I don't. I'm not sure exactly why. I don't remember exactly why, but he wanted to do usability work, and but he didn't know any. You know, I mean, he'd never been a designer. He didn't no. know much about technology, and uh, you know, he essentially came to me and said, "Can you help me do this?" You know, and um, so we. I mentored him, and he's been doing it. He's been. Oh, I mean. Goodness, it's been Guthrie like seventeen years, right? Well, I mean, been... you, you can't ask me. I was not around for the. It, uh, he's been doing <laughs> this for a long time now, and he's really successful. And uh, you know, he's a he's always so wonderful. And thank you. I just we just saw him not too long ago, and he yeah. he, he thanked yeah, thanks again. But but yeah, so I mean, there right? He's someone who listened well, and right. So I think that's. That's interesting too. You know, I'm um, teaching. Uh, I teach a. I'm an adjunct instructor at University of Wisconsin, and I teach a course each semester, and that's in an undergraduate okay. program that is in um, the official title of the program now. It just switched is uh, human technology interaction. But essentially, you know, we're growing, we're training UX people, and so it's interesting because a real uh, most of the people so far. It's it's in the computer science department, and a lot of the people that end up coming into the major, you know, are, are coming at it from a. Some of them are coming at it from a technology point of view. Others maybe from a like digital, um, photography kind of point of view. You know, and uh, so the faculty, you know, we all have this goal to um, not only teach them, you know the the some of the faculties they're teaching them you know design and prototyping and that kind of thing and 
HTML. And then some of them, like me, I'm teaching like human information processing, you know, and the, the behavioral science psychology part. But we all uh, are employing certain skills so that they learn, you know, like they, there's lots of all the instructors, all the professors, they have, they have presentations they have to give. They have teamwork they have to do. They have client work they do. They have, um, you know, they have to study research articles. And so it's, it's, um, you know, it's very hands-on. And I think we're trying to, to build in those skills. And you can see, I, it's actually kind of fun because I have sometimes, you know, students that I have uh, over several semesters and you can see that it's helping them, you know, where you have people who were not very good communicators and now have had to, you know, stand up and present, you know, 17 yeah. times. And now they're final, finally, right? I mean, some of them are very good from the beginning, but others of them really struggle with it. And now they're finally getting to the point where they know how it works, they know how to do it, you know, and it's, uh, it's fun to, to see them um, grow in that regard. And I don't think that we... You know, I think once you get in the workplace, I don't know how much of that. I mean, I think everyone thinks it's valuable, but somehow if you're going to do training, that's not what you're going to do a workshop on, you know? Well, I mean, I think we often, it's it's funny because all we do is um, kind of, we do a lot of thinking about people and the interactions between people. And there is almost no place weirder than the work environment <laughs> in which you're just like mashing together all these people who would not normally do a thing My... together it's yeah just, absolutely very strange it's it bizarre isn't it and you sort of wonder wonder how it i always think you sort of um i had this kind of theory that no one should ever criticize someone else's work because you will never understand what it took to make that thing happen <laughs> because you know what i mean like you know all these things will happen behind the scenes that are just ridiculous things Ridic things with no you know thing people were off sick things broke just just kind of life conspired against you whatever it might be and every every everything that's gone live will have a brilliant story behind it won't it of you know the the trials and tribulations right, that took right. to make that thing happen but right. i think that's that was one thing i talked to a friend in bristol a lot about actually and his his view is that you know graduates are coming through and people are being trained because there's now a massive demand for people to um to learn the sorts of skills we're talking about to kind of feed the feed the industry but they also need to be ready for the world of work and how do you learn that you know how do you pick up on the nuances of of like you were saying Gosby, the the madness of work you know how do you learn that stuff without without doing it and you know is it is it right to is it better to go and do loads of extra study or is it better to actually go to work and get a job and learn learn the rules of work and the way that things work from the maybe a, a supplier client relationship how does that work or how do the dynamics work within a big organization and how much of work is just understanding that stuff and and being able to 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 kind of use it in a way that makes the output successful you know how i think it's a huge part of it isn't it i mean it's something that i probably don't realize so much because i'm so used to it but as a as a graduate that's a that's a massive thing isn't it such a, a weird world to get involved in yeah. yeah and i don't think we i don't think we build in enough um patience i think we expect that you know everyone i wish we had more i wish in the u.s we i mean i don't know if it's any different in the uk but i wish we had more of a 
of an apprenticeship model. I okay. wish we yeah. we we knew, you know, we understood that there were some extremely talented people who maybe need some time to to get used to some of this, right? And the and we need to give them work to do and projects to do and pay them for it. You know, I mean, it, we they're not going to be. In, we can't just expect them to go to school forever. Yeah. Uh, they have to. It has to be real, and they have to be working with other people. Um, but you know, they may not be able to uh, get it all in the first, you know, thirty days, and and that's okay. And that there's someone there that can, you know mentor them and grow them and guide them a little. I, I just think we uh, we don't do a very good job at that. And we don't appreciate the, um, I mean, I, I'm really impressed with the students in our program. And, I, you know, it's we're a small school in the middle of Wisconsin, you know. Yeah. This isn't MIT. You know, we're not necessarily getting, you know, the, the, the uh, stellar, most amazing students in the country. Um, we're getting regular people, and regular people are really amazing. And and you know the quality of the work that they can do, and the quality of the the thought, the smarts they they bring to it. Um, I've been really really impressed. And I think that you know, and I'm a little saddened sometimes as they leave the program, and they're trying to get jobs. And there's jobs out there for them, you know. They're they're skilled, and they have a degree in technically computer science. But it's like the jobs sometimes seem, you know, so mundane. You know, sit. Yeah. All right, now that you've learned all the stuff, now go write code. You know, and and they. I mean, I just had, was having a conversation with one of my students who said, "I really want to do UX work." Um, I want to stay, though, in central Wisconsin, where there isn't a ton of UX work. And right. so she wanted to know what should, you know, what job should she take, <laughs> you know, right. that would eventually, because it's not going to be a UX, if it's not a UX job, yeah, okay. what should she take so that she can still somehow get there, you know? Wow, there like wasn't, a career pathway. Yeah, and there wasn't a, a definite career path, you know, and so actually, luckily. Literally family counseling. <laughs> yeah, she should be a family counselor. Now, luckily, there was some, you know, around here, the students often tend to stay here. So there were some previous students that had eventually made their way to a UX job they liked. And so, you know, I I got them in touch with that, with this woman so they could say, okay, you know, go ahead, take the take the web design job over here, you know, and eventually you'll be able to to make your way. But I wish, you know, there's such a need, right, for UX people. I Absolutely, do wish yeah. we had a, a kind of a better way to do it. Um, I think so, I, I was reflecting on, um, I was I did a talk to some students recently myself, and I, I was I was kind of anticipating questions about, you know, what what do I need to bring to a company or what what do I need to kind of demonstrate in order to, to, to be employable and, and, and get a job? And I was thinking about this idea of apprenticeships as well and thinking actually what, you know, if, if we were if within a company environment, what, what would you want from a graduate? And, you, you know, you want people who are full of ideas and enthusiastic and have all of those qualities that you, you may not have within maybe potentially like a, a an established team of people who've been working for a while so it's worth people considering the sorts of things they can bring to a, a work environment that will will really kind of nourish the rest of the team 
even if they feel they don't have a huge amount of work experience, you know, that, that idea of just being really enthusiastic, really positive, willing to learn, try stuff out, all of that stuff. Like you don't have to have any experience to do that. You can just decide to take to, for that to be your, you know, your, your position on things and, and the way that you're going to act and behave. And I think that's, that's going to be hugely beneficial for people who are looking for a bit of a step up. And I guess the other thing is the joy of a lot of the, the work you end up doing as a UX that you, you can do off your own back. You know, you don't have to wait to get a job to be able to try it out. You know, there's nothing stopping you from evaluating some things that exist in the world or having a go at redesigning things and then building up this set of case studies or stories yeah, that, that you show people. So yeah, why not? That's exactly you know? the uh, advice I gave this one woman. And there was this recently this article um, – Oh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. I'll have to go through. Maybe you can remind me and I'll put it in the in the blog post about the podcast because it was this great, I tweeted about it. It was this great, um, some UX person had, uh, uh, okay, this is going to bother me. I may have to go look it I up while you guys this, are talking like a case, about it. a case study of something they were doing? Yes, it was a, and they had done, and the reason it was so wonderful was they told it as a story. They yeah. had um, evaluated and done a little redesign on one of their favorite uh, um, e-commerce sites that they used. And and it was such a wonder, you know, and they said, well, first I did this, and then they showed a little picture, right, talking about photographs, and then I did this, yeah. and then there was another little picture, and it was it was so effective because um, it was in story format and had these wonderful little photos of the work they had done. And I showed this to my um, student that I'm working with who's looking for a job. And I said, don't do a regular portfolio. Do this. You know, go um, go pick a project. Just pick a website like they did. And, and you do everything you learned and take photos of it. And yep. write a little story. And I said, yeah. if you do this, this will this will get you a job, right? Because I just know that if I were hiring and someone showed me that, I'd go, this is great. You know, they obviously know what they're doing. They know the right terminology. They did the right methodology. And then they have these great little pictures and it's a wonderful story. So... Um, yeah, I did read that. I've just rem- I found it. It was about, it was on Zara, on the, on the, um, the clothes manufacturer retailer, Zara. Yes. Uh, Who and what? Who's the um, who's the uh, author of that? Uh, William William Ng, who's a product design freelance, UCLA. Um, yeah. And it's the, the the beauty of it was is you're right. It's this this idea of telling stories because you think so many of the parts of doing work are about telling stories. You know, you pitch for new work. You tell stories about the stuff you've done in the past. You know, um, if you want to influence or inform people during a project team of stuff that's really gone bad or really worked well in the past you tell stories you know you want in a final presentation to justify or even maybe in maybe talking through a, a set of user research you tell stories you just tell stories the whole time you know that's that's just such a, a fundamental way that we're kind of yeah. used to communicating with each other uh, you chat with your colleagues what you did at the weekend you're telling stories you just you know, the more you think about it yeah we all just spend our lives telling stories and we're really good at it. You know, that's kind of, it's a fundamental thing. Um, and I think that ability then to tell a story, but then reflect on what you did and what worked well and what didn't work well is a really good thing for people to be able to do. You know, just looking through this example, the Zara case study, it might be that, you know, they, they create some job stories. Oh, was that, why did you do it? Was that, was that useful? Um, how would you have changed the way that worked? I think having the ability to reflect on the way you've done something 
is massively important because there's always that pinch point within a project where you get given a problem to solve and then you've got to decide how you're going to do it. And I've ended yeah. up working more around, I design projects more than, more than I design things because I'm involved in the kind of deciding how we're going to, we're going to solve a problem in terms of what process we're going to follow, what, what tools, techniques, activities we're going to do alongside the people I'm working with. And, you know, we'll, we'll kind of design it that way. So again, it's a design challenge in its own right, but it, it, after every project, we hold a wash up session, say what worked well, what didn't work so well, why did we do it that way? What were we thinking? What should we change? And again, you're, you know, you're kind of changing things that there's no right or wrong way of doing things. You know, you, you have to, come up with an idea of how you're going to f solve a problem and stick to it and then continually challenge yourself during that process of is it working is it not working but the other thing I'd add is this idea of almost keeping a diary during projects as well because mm. I find you get to the end of a project you can't remember what you did yeah um, and and so you sort of feel well how am I ever going to develop if I can't remember what I did and reflect on the bits that were good uh, and also it helps you in the future because if you get a similar project you think oh this feels a bit like the other one how did we do that one again and which bits which bits were good um otherwise i think that's such an important part of being a, a professional actually is just keeping those diaries and, and reminding yourselves and, and trying to continually improve and do things differently otherwise i just think it would just get boring like why would you how is it ever going to be nourishing if you don't feel you're improving yeah okay so um i have some tough questions for you james Go on, go for it. Put putting your put your feet to the fire here. Okay. Okay. Question number one. Uh, in your in your opinion, what is currently the biggest challenge to to your field? The biggest the, the biggest thing that's that's holding your your field your field back from its full potential. Oh, that's a good question. I think um, I think in many ways it feels like there's a there's a lot of kind of um, self-reflection maybe or endless kind of uh, conversations around what what user experience actually is and 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 uh, and how should we be developing and what's good and what's bad and you just think well and maybe that's just from spending too much time on twitter uh, and, and things like that <laughs> uh, which which is um, not potentially the most constructive thing to do um so i don't i suppose I, I, I see a bit of that and you just think well in many ways that kind of flies in the face of of more liberating ways of working like just running experiments and not trying to produce perfect things all the time i think that idea of you know the the, the genius designer and perfection is just hopefully disappearing and uh, everyone's acknowledging that no one no one really knows and we'll just make this thing and see what happens and i found that as i said earlier i think i found that that hugely hugely liberating so, so i don't i don't feel there's a there's a massive threat to the, the industry i feel that you know the industry is continually growing i think people are, are moving in different directions and describing themselves potentially in different ways um and just maybe broadening out their opportunities by you know maybe talk, thinking about themselves as more of product designers or service designers because again there's there's different opportunities there to work on different things so it's it's really interesting just seeing how the industry is continually evolving, um, and and it, I think it is a is a, is a continual issue of how you try and keep up with things. I, I find that a, a challenge myself actually. You know how can you how can you continually keep up with what's going on with within an industry that feels like it's changing every day? All right, one uh, more question. Go go. So go. ten years from now, uh, cool. in in the industry, what 
um, who's the big winner? So everyone is is running around, and and there are, there are obviously lots of different methodologies that people promote, and different ways of thinking, and different strategies. And there's every every there's the, there's a there's this big confluence of ideas. Ten years from if you if you were going to buy a stock in a in a UX idea, who who's the big winner? What's the big winner? You know what? It's interesting seeing how trends change and, and things emerge because um, at the moment the the big trends that I'm seeing are, are ideas around working within um, cross-functional teams and, and all working on the same problems together, working in kind of more agile or you know very much not working in a kind of waterfall process. And it's interesting reflecting on 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 these kind of cycles within the, within the industry that you'll talk to people who've been in in the industry or working for a long time and they'll be like oh i remember this we did this years ago this isn't anything new so i wonder whether we'll be in a repeat cycle and maybe maybe i don't know maybe waterfall will be the way to go um but i think fundamentally we'll always have this kind of we'll always we'll always have this guiding light of of knowing that the right thing to do is to put people at the, at the heart of the way we're designing and who we're designing for as a way of determining what we end up doing. So I think, I think fundamentally, you know, the philosophy, the approach won't change, you know, the tools, the techniques, the, there'll be, there'll be new acronyms. There'll be, there'll be new flavors of the month. Of course there will be uh, for different reasons, but I think that that call will be the same. So you heard it here, guys. James <laughs> says, gonna be the same. <laughs> waterfall. No, waterfall is, is the way to go. Waterfall I just is wanted, the future. I think that's the yeah, takeaway from this future. entire uh, hour, hour long. <laughs> yeah. James is saying, why yeah, did surprise. I agree to come talk with these people? <laughs> I'm going right, to get one right of my wonderful book now. <laughs> um, James, before we go, why don't you tell uh, people how they can reach you if they want to get hold of you? Yeah, sure. You can uh, you can reach me via Twitter, of course, uh, at Chudders. Um, I write various bits here and there on on Medium as well as uh, the CX Partners website. So that is that C H U D D E R S. C H U D D E R S. Yeah. And is there anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, oh yeah, there is actually. I've I've been plug thinking away. about this idea of. Uh, of checklists and uh, it was inspired by there's a great very famous radio program called desert island discs which is a kind of a it's been going on forever it's about 70 years old and uh, people talk of on this radio program about if they were marooned on a desert island which were the seven records they'd choose to take with them but really the radio program was more about a story of their lives and it's kind of a psychoanalysis in many ways of of of, of these people it's fascinating and there was one with a a surgeon who developed this idea of checklists and um, said, actually, if we just run through this checklist before we operated on people, we could hugely improve the success rates of, of surgery. And I wonder whether by creating checklists for the sorts of things that we do, we could make our work a bit easier and a bit more efficient. So I had a go at creating a checklist for conducting user research. And um, there's about 75 points on it. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought and the more I worked out. So I'm just about to publish a um, an article on that and share that checklist and it will be available on the CX Partners blog hopefully tomorrow but give us a week and it will be there okay so um, and to, to find the CX Partners blog what's the best way to do that um, or if you just google CX Partners which is C-X-P-A-R-T-N-E-R-S and okay. away you go <laughs> All right. 
Sounds good. James, thanks so much for awesome. it's talking. Been a Are you coming over to the US anytime soon that we could meet up or something? Uh, no plans at the moment, but you never know. <laughs> let let me know. And if we're coming over to the, to the UK, we'll let you know. Awesome. That'd be amazing. Uh, All right. Uh, and um, Guthrie. Yeah. If people want to reach us, they can. Uh... Yeah, you can just email info at theteamw.com and you can tweet at Susan at. Uh... You can tweet me yeah. at the brain lady. The brain lady. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, everyone out there, um, I hope you all have a great week. Bye. Bye bye. Bye.